0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink, inspiring public curiosity about food. Learn
2: more at mofad.org. This is Michael Harlan Turkell, host of The Food Scene on Heritage Radio Network, been a part of the HRN community for over nine years and nearly 400 episodes. And even after all that time, I'm constantly inspired by the incredible voices on our network. Each week I record my show in the HRN studio made of two recycled shipping containers because I'm excited to bring you, our listeners, the most important stories from the food world. All of us here at HRN make food radio because we love it. This year, HRN is celebrating its 10th anniversary, but we need your support to keep Food Radio going strong for the next decade. Join the HRN community today by becoming a member. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate right now. And you can even show some love for my show by selecting the food scene in the designation drop-down menu. Thanks for listening to HRN. Hey, and welcome to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan terrakel And th- this is the first time I've ever been able to say that my guest is the great-grandson of a preacher man. I just <laughs> wanted to reference that song. Um, today, I have Chadwick Boyd. And what's so fascinating about you is I really have no clue what you do. Because you are magnanimous. You kind of do everything. You're one of those, um, what do they call them, like polymaths in the world <laughs> of food. But you you come from a very interesting background, because if I were to meet you now and not know where you came from, I would straight up think that you were Southern. I am Southern. So I am right. But <laughs> there is also a big part of you that isn't necessarily Southern. That's uh,
3: absolutely right. Yes. Can, can you explain what that division is? Yeah. So it's, it's an interesting thing that I... Uh, I had to discover myself, too, and it didn't happen until I got really knee deep into the food world. Um, And honestly, it wasn't until a a talk and a conversation with John T. Edge that a little puzzle piece came together for me. And so I was born in uh, the land of the Yankees in Pennsylvania. Uh, but I grew up with fried chicken and sweet tea and biscuits and cornbread every day that was being made in our kitchen. And so this was Pennsylvania Dutch country with Amish around. And yet everybody around called themselves hillbillies and and were accustomed to sweet tea. And so it was this unique mix of, of Pennsylvania Dutch and... Uh, and Southern together that I thought was normal. And we always vacationed in the South. We had relatives that came up from the South. My great grandfather was a Southern Baptist preacher uh, who actually came up from Virginia with my great grandmother, Miss Zella. Uh, they got married, I think they were 16 years old, and came up to Southeastern Pennsylvania to save the damn Yankees from hell. I mean, really, that's true. They they came, they settled there just to, to establish a church. So, first of all, a family of such
2: wonderful names, and we'll have <laughs> to maybe talk about the etymology of that. But these these fried chickens, biscuits, this southern cuisine that was instilled was it for sustenance or was it occupational for your grandparents?
3: Uh, it was both. So it was farmland, country. Um, I always say that my great grandfather's church were two things. It was. The Southern Baptist Church and his garden. And when he wasn't preaching or praying over a table, he was out in the garden. And to him, uh, garden was how he ministered to people. And so we always had vegetables uh, at our table all year long. And if it wasn't fresh right out of the garden, there were put-ups out in the dirt cellar that we would pull up and my grandmother would heat them up and they would be on the table. So we had that pretty much every single day. And that to me, growing up, was what people just did. It wasn't until I got to college in North Carolina where people were like, dude, who are you? <laughs> I, I know all the allegories
2: that can can, you know, bridge religion and and gardens, but did they use that against you? Like if you didn't eat your salad, you were going to, you know,
3: H Never. No. <laughs> it was food was a we were Uh, my grandfather used to say that we were not rich in money, but we were rich in food and we were, you know, all around us, we were exchanging with other families food that's from our dairy farm or from the garden with other families. And we made celebrations out of every single thing. So we were always coming together at the table and that was as important, but separate from religion and that was the thing for me that was the seed that was planted in my heart for why I loved food and telling stories and brought people together that's that's very important you know me now and that is something that I value so so much it's it's the core of my motivation for everything it's storytelling and
2: you are a naturally born entertainer as well but let, let's talk about being at the table with your family and a 10-year-old chef named Chadwick <laughs> cooking out of the Betty Crocker cookbook for boys and girls. Yeah, um, What brought you to that
3: juncture? Why did you want to turn food into something maybe performative? I don't know that I can answer that question directly. All I knew is that my, my great-grandmother, Miss Ella, she would sing as she would cook. And growing up in that area, it's very gruff. So the men are very, you know, rough. They don't show their emotions. And I didn't like that gruffness, but what I loved is on this at the Sunday table, everybody would come together and there was like this pause. and it was the only time that I saw my grandfathers tell jokes and laugh. and that that roughness kind of melted away. And I loved how, the food and the table was the thing where that happened. And so for me that, that it, I connected with that part. And it's not to say that you don't take food seriously, but it,
2: it's so nice to have such levity in it as well. Yeah. And we'll parlay that, uh, uh <laughs> into the levity of how biscuits should be in a little bit, but I, I want to get back to this dinner party. Um, the menu, uh, was what? Oh
3: goodness. Um, There would be a roast beef or a roast pork or fried chicken. Um, There were tons of vegetables, uh, always something fresh, uh, like a a salad. But there were, it was definitely corn with a little bit of sugar in it. There were green beans that had ham hocks and, you know, other bits of ham. Uh, Beans for sure. Uh, All kinds of, of beans. So very simple stuff, but you know, th- uh, those are the things that I love to serve and eat the most.
2: So what of that did you bring to college? I, I asked this because your degree didn't have anything to has do with, to do with <laughs> food it. specifically, yeah. but now, uh, in this day and age, it has a lot to do with
3: food. Yeah, for sure. Um, gosh, that's such a good question. Uh, in college, I was more... I, I, <laughs> I wanted to be Mike Brady for some reason. Architecture. So you asked the question earlier about the the Betty Crocker kids cookbook. and And I can't tell you why I was drawn to that, but I studied that more than I did my homework. I was a really good student and it came easy to me, but I wanted to master that cookbook as a kid. And then somehow, once I did, I got fascinated with other things. And so I just kind of put the food part as a pause. It, it became a normal thing for me because I was always cooking for my family. My, my grandmother on the other side um, decorated cakes and she taught me how to do that. And I was doing that while I was starring in plays in high school. But when I went to college, food kind of paused and I explored the creative side. That's kind of where the the food writing part came alive because writing for me I, I, I fell in love with the structure of words and understood that part and so it, it wasn't until later in my life when all of those things kind of came together I get asked all the time like how did you get in to do what you do and I wish I had this direct answer to tell people because it would be much more simple but it was never that simple but it really makes
2: sense. Well, now you'll have an archived ef- episode to forward on to people who ask that question. <laughs> 30 minutes of unedited Chadwick. Um, in college, with an English degree, you were also exploring the thespian side of things and, and acting and being on stage and in front of camera. Uh, you wrote me this very interesting little anecdote about being on the set of Dead Poets Society, an yeah. Academy Award-winning
3: play. 30th anniversary movie. this year. Oh, wow. Yeah, it came out in June. Yeah,
2: and, You know, the scene, oh, Captain, my captain, with Robin Williams uh, up on the desk. It wasn't so much that you were in that movie that I was wowed about, but the the, the meal that the producers gave you for working overtime on New Year's (laughs) Eve. Can you tell me about that?
3: Yeah, that was that that was amazing. So uh, they it was really tough. Uh, So just a little bit of background. Uh, I was chosen as an extra in that movie, and it was during Christmas break. And, you know, when you're a junior in high school, almost a senior, you're looking for to go out and have fun, especially during your breaks. And we were on set for 16 to 18 hours a day and I loved it, but it was exhausting (laughs) And we, had, we were rounding through the holiday coming into New Year's, and we were there on New Year's Eve. And the Eagles were playing in this championship game, which I cared nothing about, but every other guy there did. And so did Robin Williams. And they were running long. Peter Weir was is this master maker. Um, and this was when Robin Williams was, it was his first dramatic role. And so they were really taking their time to get the right pieces. And so they were running over, and they had – a group of us, and they said, hey, guys, we're going to turn the game on for you to watch, and we're going to cook you lobster tails for for your dinner. And we were like, holy crap, like, that's what? You know, as a high school student. But, you know, I guess to that point that you're making is that food always is a part of milestones of, of my life and my journey.
2: And it's also been cinematic. Um, maybe that's, you know, a, a big jump, but it's always been uh, about this kind of visual recall Uh, again this storytelling that it's not just sensorial it's not just you know flavor and taste for you but it's about setting this scene um from there i know i'm jumping way past college you 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 worked in tv for a while yeah what got you there
3: i i can't answer (laughs) that question you know i here's here's the deal just like um dead poet society came up one day um this producer from CBS. Um I didn't know at the time that she was from CBS but I was uh, I was working on this uh CBS the early show lifestyle piece. And at 5:30 in the evening I knew a producer was coming from the show. And it was this woman from Virginia who was like six foot tall and she had this jet black hair that was wrapped on the top of her head and she was dressed from head to toe in Chanel and everybody was afraid of her, but I wanted to do everything with her. And that's where I learned to be a producer. It's where I learned to tell a story for television. And I just, I had the best time of my life and that was what ignited that national TV thing for me.
2: You've worked on the Today Show, uh, Food Networks, The Kitchen, Lifetime, PBS, Hallmark, Home and Family. Um, When did you want to stop being a producer and become present, become a person in front of the lens?
3: Well, so I transitioned from that. I actually went into PR and brand communications for several years. Again, the storytelling. And what was interesting is that while I had really short stints in – technology and finance it was always laddering back to consumer food so i was working on church's chicken and you know working with the bureau chief from cnn at 4 a.m and i thought that was you know awesome to do but um it wasn't until the early 2000s that um uh, I started to connect more with television, and it took me until 2008, after the death of my grandfather, for me to give myself permission to step in front of the camera, and that was a really big step for me because I had been trained to be the one to create the magic behind the scenes for viewers. But what I realized is that all along, that while I was working with other people, people who are peers and friends of mine now, that I was giving myself that training. And it became this beautiful thing when I shifted to be in front of the camera. And I love it because I'm all about home cooks. Um, I always say that I've worked with the best chefs in the world, people that we all love and revere and have cookbooks by. But um, I didn't have to go to culinary school. You know, I didn't have to pay the tuition to do it. Uh, But at the end of the day, I will always be a champion for home cooks and getting people in the kitchen, which is where I began.
2: I mean, you've also cooked alongside such great chefs like Art Smith, um, performers like Tricia Yearwood and Dolly Parton, but uh, these people are nourishing themselves with home cooking or home-style cooking. It's not this more aristocratic, you know, white
3: tablecloth.
2: It's very egalitarian.
3: Yeah, very much so. They're uh, all wonderfully talented people, but their cooking is pretty simple, too. You know, it, it their, uh, their food is what they grew up on, and that's what they share. I mean, if you look at Trisha's show, um, it, it's all about the recipes that her mother and her family made in middle Georgia.
2: I mean, how is Dolly as a cook, and do they
3: serve food at Dollywood? They do serve food <laughs> at Dollywood. I had an amazing yeah. lunch at with Kat Kinsman and Justin Chapel one day, one afternoon at, at Dollywood, and we chowed down on cornbread and and pork and beans. It was amazing. Yeah, uh, but Dolly has a cookbook, which I did not know, uh, and I think it's called Dolly's Kitchen or something. But uh, yeah, she's uh, she does cook, and I have heard she. Um, when she works on movie projects in Atlanta, uh, she has stayed at some friends' homes, and uh, she does has been known to get in the kitchen and throw down. That's awesome. Well,
2: <laughs> we're going to take a quick break and come back and uh, explore, you know, y- your presence in front of the lens in, in fifteen thousand movie screens around the country. You've been listening <laughs> to the Food Scene on the Heritage Radio Network org. We'll be right back.
1: This episode is brought to you by MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink. Featuring a variety of interactive displays, MOFAD encourages eaters of all ages to be curious about food. The museum currently operates MOFAD Lab, a 5,000-square-foot experimental space in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, where Chow, making the Chinese-American restaurant, is currently on show. This exhibition celebrates the birth and evolution of Chinese-American restaurants, tracing their nearly 170-year history and sparking conversations about food culture, immigration, and what it means to be American. It highlights the evolution timeline of Chinese-American restaurant menus, dating back to 1910, and also highlights a tasting section where participants get to enjoy tastings created by the country's most talented chefs who specialize in Chinese-American cuisine. Check out Mofad's tastings and extensive event calendar at Mofad.org slash events.
2: Hey, and welcome back to the food scene on Heritage Radio Network.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkell, here with Chadwick Boyd. And let's talk about this pre movie screening show that you have Real Food, R E E L. I-, I had to spell it out because this show's name is the food scene, and I never know how to inflect S <laughs> E E N. You know, the, the, the pun doesn't work so well in the words. Um, 15,000 movie screens around the country. Yeah. <laughs> How
3: did you get on the big screen? Through a very good friend of mine, uh, who was one of the first producers I worked with at the Today Show. And again, it was another one of those serendipitous things that just fell into place. And uh, there was... A, a company that was looking to take all the crappy ads off the front end of movies and put things up there that people cared about because tickets were going to 18 to $20 a person. so if you're a family going to the movies, you're paying a hundred bucks or more. And you know, there are these crappy little local ads, sorry people, but they are, <laughs> and they just stripped them down. They were like, let's entertain people a little bit more. And one of the things that everybody, no matter who you are, background, your age Everybody agrees on food. So together we created real food. And it was the first food entertainment series to be in American movie theaters.
2: And, you know, people are sitting there with popcorn and and, um, Sour Patch
3: Kids and Raisinets. What kind of food are you teaching them? It's, It's an interesting question. So what I didn't realize, you know, when you're working on television shows, you know who your viewer is, right? So you know at... On the Today Show at 9.30 in the morning, who's tuning in there? Or if you're on Food Network at 10 or 11 o'clock on Saturday, you know the viewer. But in movie theaters, it's seniors in the middle of the week. It's date night on Saturday night. It's kids, you know, during the weekend. And so what I learned in coming up with the food that we were going to share is that there's a mindset that we all have when we go to the movies. And certain foods work And certain foods don't. And so it's um, I focus on things that is are a little bit of escape um, that have some nostalgic type tie uh, to the past, but are modern and fresh that you want to do it today. So an example, I always say that I was in my family. I'm blessed with the perfect focus group because my oldest nephews and my niece are 10 to 14 and so if I, if I pass something through them and they are give me the thumbs up, I know I'm good. It's a right? good
2: metrics to have. Yeah, yeah,
3: so my my nephew Carter was like, Uncle Chadwick, I love Sloppy Joes. You should you should do Sloppy Joes. And I was like, Carter, how about if we do a Sloppy Joe burger? He's like, yeah, that's cool. And that everybody loved the Sloppy Joe burger. I used to make Sloppy Joes in the late 70s and the early 80s on Tuesday nights. You know, it was ground beef in a cast iron skillet with... French's mustard and Heinz ketchup and brown sugar and vinegar, right? And so I hadn't connected that in 20, 25 years. And when I asked other people who were my age, they were like, oh, my God, I used to love sloppy joes. And so being able to create food like that and share that on screen is what real food does.
2: I mean sloppy joes. I, I don't know where in the country they came from. Uh, I don't think of them as secularly south, but uh, another food they subject were definitely home cooked. Yes, and very very simple. But but something that I don't want to use the word relegated. Um, something that is is purely staunchly southern is is a biscuit. Yeah, and. <laughs> You're killing me right now uh, by having these freshly baked peach biscuits sitting in front of us for as long as we have without touching them. Um, you are on this crusade to turn this singular food item into something bigger than that.
3: Yeah, I am.
2: What, what is, I mean, we've gone through so many character arcs and stories about your life, but this is, is such a big passion project right now. And,
3: you know, as you're saying that, I get tingles going down. Uh, my back, as you say that, you know, like everything else that we're talking about in my life and biscuit kind of came in serendipitously too. Um, I, I talked earlier about my great grandmother. She would make biscuits um, by hand and that she would sing when she would make food, but she would sing when she made biscuits, especially. And she was one of those home cooks that would throw flour down and, um, have lard on the counter and she would get sour milk out of the refrigerator and she would just bring the biscuit dough together and put them in the hot oven. And they were just, that was just a normal, regular thing. Uh, I kind of took that for granted, but as I got older, I got this invitation to help uh, be a part of the international biscuit festival in Knoxville. And That happened while I was visiting and touring this amazing uh, private family-owned mill in rural, like far out North Carolina. And I was just so fascinated by this family that had constantly put their life savings into making the best flour. And I met the biscuit boss during that time. And the next thing it was like, let's make the biscuit festival happen. I'm like, okay, let's go. And 25,000 people would come out every May on a Saturday for the Biscuit Festival. And I got to learn from and connect with some of the best biscuit masters in the country. And it reignited my connection to them in a way that I realized people today across the country don't get that like what I do. And so that has become part of what you just said my crusade. I guess.
2: Yeah. So Knoxville, Tennessee, gets flooded with twenty-five thousand biscuit makers, lovers um, from novices to masters. Uh, what time of year does that happen? May. So every May, th- this town gets descended upon.
3: Well, it's it's taken a hiatus yeah. for right now, <laughs> but yes, for um, eight years it it did. Yeah.
2: But no matter what level of skill you have to make a biscuit, uh, you really only need three things, and that's. Flour, fat, and liquid. Yeah. Tell me Full fat, liquid. (laughs) Tell me about how democratic that is and what your favorite of those three things
3: are. Um, So that's a really good question, and I get that a lot. Um, One of the things that I'm so passionate about is that biscuits, while coming from the South, um, there are tons of amazing biscuit makers all over the country. I mean, you can go to Portland... And pine state biscuits and wrapped around the corner is some of the most incredible biscuit sandwiches that I have had. Uh, but I feel anybody can make a biscuit because we have pretty much the same grocery stores in every town and city across the country. So we have access to pretty much the same brands of flour in the South. We have more of the soft wheat flour. Uh, but, uh, anybody across the country can make biscuit. But for me is you have to have a full fat liquid. So one of the things that I am just, it drives me crazy and Carla Hall agrees with me too, is that low fat buttermilk in grocery stores, that's what most people have access to. Um, But use the full fat. So use full fat yogurt, full fat um, sour cream, or if you can get it, the full fat buttermilk. But that's what I think is, that's what makes a good biscuit.
2: And and it's also the temperature of that fat. Uh, I've learned how to make a biscuit from my good friend Jeremy Sewell at yeah. Island Creek Oyster Bar, who I think makes one of the best biscuits I've ever tasted. It's it's just like really flaky and nice, um and has this beautiful sheen of honey and rosemary on top. Oh gosh. But it's so good. It's all about grating that cold butter in. Yeah. What does that do for a biscuit?
3: So, um, what you're talking about is taking really cold butter, or sometimes frozen butter, and running it on a box grater, and putting that into the dry ingredients. And what that does is it separates the fat, and it you with your fingers you then disperse it very easy, simply throughout the dry mix. And when you put the full fat liquid in it, it creates these pockets that where the leavening and the acid from the liquid come together and it causes them to flake and puff up. And it's the mo- the best way I think, and Carla agrees with me of how to put butter into your, uh, your biscuit recipe.
2: Well, I, I can't not have one of your biscuits right now. Again, they're sitting in front of me. They smell so good. Let, let's start munching on those while we keep on chatting. Um, Another tenant of good biscuit making is: do not overwork the dough. That is right. Uh, I've always been told to. You can tell a good biscuit maker uh, from a bad one by the temperature of their hands, because <laughs> uh, hot-handed biscuit makers melt that butter uh, really manipulating the, the texture and
3: feel of that dough. Have you found that true? Have you shaken hands with a lot of biscuit makers? Yeah. So people ask me like my, my biscuits don't come out like yours do. And these biscuits that we're eating, they're, they're um It's a new recipe that's on my website, uh, but these are peach biscuits and they're very rudimentary biscuits. So um, they've got uh, a sugar dusting on top of it. And I'm serving that with a whipped butter with just a little bit of salt in it. Um, if you have warm hands, or you overwork it, what happens is that you get really flat, like boring biscuits. Uh, but if you just touch it light enough, that's when you, and you put it in a hot, hot oven, like four twenty-five, four fifty, they're going to go and get that lift to them, and that is magic. But often people are like. You know, my biscuits are flat or whatever. It's because they have touched it too much or that they have overworked it. These biscuits are anything but. When I when I'm not talking, it
2: usually means that I'm really enjoying myself. And these are a stunning example. They they tear apart like a cloud. You know, they have such
3: softness to them. So what's interesting about these biscuits is that and has become kind of my specialty I guess is that fruits or vegetables are not a friend of a biscuit because they have moisture in them right and so moisture is the enemy of biscuits you want to just get the liquid in at the very end pull the dough together and put them in the oven but I have found a way to add these have peaches these are frozen peaches and you uh, the very first thing is that you cut them up In smaller pieces, so the biscuit cutter can run through it. But you dust it very quickly with flour to coat them, and put them back in the freezer until you're ready to do make the dough or when it comes together. But that's the case for carrots and zucchini and all kinds of stuff. Is that if you just dust them enough for flour to coat them, the flour does the wicking of the moisture, and then you can put great wonderful natural flavors into biscuits.
2: I love that you've done the biscuits God's work for us, (laughs) spreading this gospel. And you've mentioned uh, someone who a lot of people on this station know, Carla Hall. Not to name drop, you too have started this great collaboration called Biscuit Time. And what are you doing with that and how you bring these amazing I'm going to have another, uh, peach biscuits (laughs) to,
3: to the rest of the country, if not world. Yeah, well, Carla is a very dear friend. We love each other very much and we discovered together that we feel as passionately about biscuits, um, on our own as together. And we decided that this year that we would take a biscuit class on the road and teach people how to do them. And so, uh, Carla does her from her wonderful cookbook, Carla's, um, Carla Hall's soul food. Um, uh, She does a very basic, classic buttermilk with some tricks. And then I build on them by doing my carrot sage biscuits. And so uh, we drop these tips uh, between these two recipes, and they work really well together. Same as Carl and I in kitchen together.
2: (laughs) Yeah. I'm halfway through another one of these biscuits, and they're ridiculous. And it's it's so great, again, seeing you, spread the word of this singular thing, but it's so much more than just the biscuit. It's about bringing people together over these three very simple things and, you know, hopefully bringing people together over a table for that Sunday laughter that, that your grandfather had, for singing in the kitchen that your grandmother Zella
3: had. I mean, that's what this is all about, right? For sure. I mean, in at the end of January, my little niece, Winslow, came for a visit. She was not quite two, and we made... Her- our very first batch of biscuits together. And so I got her up on her little stool and she's, you know, touching things and I'm giving her things to do. And so we patted out the dough and I let her choose the biscuit cutter and she chose a little small one that was kind of the size of her hand. And I showed her how to press it down and she pressed it down and I popped it up and out and into her hand and she goes, Oh, it's a Winnie biscuit. And that I was like, yes, Yes, it is a Winnie Biscuit, you know, and that was a moment, but I can name so many moments that have happened just by making biscuits with strangers, as well as family as anybody. And it's always this wonderful experience where you learn something about somebody else that you didn't before you create a moment together. And you certainly are making something delicious that I mean, honestly, I really haven't met a biscuit that I didn't like. I, I might
2: challenge you on that, because not to call my wife out, terrible biscuit maker, so I might have her follow you on the road. Sorry, wife. Um, again, thank you so much for not only bringing these biscuits, but bring such kind of joy, such a lighthearted nature to all these things food, but really at the core of it, bring people together over you know something that We should both take seriously and and with uh, a certain amount of levity as well. Absolutely. Uh, And how can we follow you and biscuit time in general?
3: So you can uh, go to ChadwickBoydLifestyle.com and there will be a new biscuit page here shortly um, that has a bunch of new biscuit recipes on there. Uh, And I think we're about to announce where we're going to go in June. So you can follow me on Instagram. Or Facebook at Chadwick Boyd.
2: And we will do. We will follow your biscuits anywhere. <laughs> thank you so <laughs> I've been much. I haven't told for being that on. before. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to the food scene on heritageradionetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at three. A big thank you to our sponsor, Music by Cookies and Matt Patterson Engineering. Cheers.